0: When you think about what data labeling is, like how do you just transform raw data into information from which you can learn? In a sense, everyone with domain expertise is doing that every day. And that is they're seeing what happens. We're all doing it every day in a real human sense where we've got input, we're perceiving things, looking at things, hearing things and whatnot. We're figuring out their relevance in the context of other things and we're trying to learn and that's what intelligence is.
1: From Dogpatch
0: Advisors, it's Ground Truth, a podcast about company builders, leadership, and how operators use data to build the future of sales.
1: Today, we'll welcome to the podcast, Ash Fontana, a partner at Zeta Ventures and one of the leading investors in Silicon Valley. And today's Ground Truth episode will be a little bit different because we're going to do a book review. Ash has recently written a book called The AI First Company. We'll talk to him today about what inspired him to write this book, the research process and what it took to pull this huge effort together, what he's thinking about next and some behind the scenes insights about how to use AI at your company. Ash, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me again. Super excited to chat with you about all things AI-first companies, uh, your book, and everything that you're building here around that ecosystem. want to start a little bit with a little bit about your background uh, growing up in Australia. Maybe if you could give us the sort of uh, the intro to Ash. What was your life like growing up? How did the education system in Australia help to shape some of your Mm. views today and sort of lead up to a lot of the work you're doing around AI?
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess the obvious thing to say is I was fortunate to grow up there because the base level of education is phenomenal. Um, But the second thing to say is I think my education was less idiosyncratic to Australia and more idiosyncratic to the Jesuit tradition. And their philosophy around education is to you know, really encourage people to look at things from many different points of view and be very rigorous and and critical um, of of everything. It's a very analytical tradition, and so I think I was really shaped by that. And so I tend to be, you know, very sequential and analytical in how I think through things, and that was a big part of um, my education. Uh, that sort of tradition. And the other part was public speaking um, and debating, which again, you know, really forces you to figure out how to articulate things very concisely and with a high degree of accuracy because you have a time limit um, to get your points across. So that was um, another big part of my education.
1: You know, I know from your, you know, anyone could see on your LinkedIn profile, you, you actually studied law uh before you got into the working world spent some time in finance and then you know started a company before moving to silicon valley you talk a lot about these ai principles in the book as it is today if you could go back to sort of your early career knowing what you know now what would you have done differently in sort of early company building especially as it relates to to ai and early work on that
0: i think with respect to the first couple of businesses i started um probably just would have erred more on the side of engaging with the really messy data problems that companies have. Uh, You know, two or three decades ago, when I was starting my first companies, they were very messy and they were the sort of things that you have to do a lot of consulting services to solve. And so I erred away from them and tried to create products like websites and marketplaces and things like that. But, you know, I probably would have learned more more meaningfully engaged with customers and frankly made more money if I had have just done a lot more data management services back then. Um, And I think that's, you know, a half decent, uh, not lesson to share, but like prompt for a lot of people that are thinking about starting products, building products and starting businesses around those products, which is like, there's actually a lot to be said for doing, a very deep level of consulting with your first couple of customers and engaging with them on that basis. Um, And a lot of the companies I meet have done that, but they sort of shy away from really talking about that or or try not to do as much of that as perhaps would be productive because they want to create a scalable product. And, you know, fast forwarding that can often be um, at the cost of learning a lot.
1: You mentioned you started several companies. Um, you you spent some time at Angelus and were a critical part of the team, sort of building out that platform. How did you decide to go from Angelus to focusing on AI full time? Mm. I think the really short answer to that question
0: is, once you've seen twenty thousand technology companies, you have a pretty good idea of what's diriga, what's sort of hard and valuable but not like right at the edge of both hard and valuable and uh you know extending on that you you start to get a sense of like what's truly novel and it it really is after only seeing that many companies or only after seeing that many companies that you get that appreciation i think and so you know i was at the point couple of years into AngelList, but also having done a lot of investing before professionally across different asset classes, that I just really thought that the most difficult and valuable thing, obviously, something can be really difficult, not valuable, something can be very valuable and not very difficult, was, again, managing huge volumes of data. And for the context here, this was around the year 2014, uh, 13, 14. And I just thought, well, why focus on anything else? And anything else being any other technology that doesn't help with that problem. And more constructively, I should probably only focus on what people were calling and have called for many years artificial intelligence. That's sort of a helpful, sort of an unhelpful term, but it's good enough to use for now. So yeah, I got an impression of what's really hard and valuable, what's not really hard and valuable what a lot of people are working on and just decided it was the only thing worth investing in and understanding. And from every point of view, like, you know, it sort of sounds boring to focus on one thing, but when you think about it, focusing on AI means you get to spend a lot of time thinking about neuroscience and a lot of time thinking about the history of computer science and data management and moving data around um, using like microprocessors. And a lot about, you know, information theory and the value of information and presenting information. So while it's like quite a narrow focus and it's sort of funny to spend your entire life in one area, you know, I find it to be really stimulating in lots of different ways and allows me to still read pretty widely and um, have like a broad consideration around technology and policy and economics.
1: Great. And speaking of, uh, of reading, I've just finished your book. It was awesome. First of all, thank you for writing it. Thank you for reading it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and what was, the, what was the inspiration behind the book? Was there an exact moment where you said, I know I have to document this in long form? Walk us through the sort of very beginnings of writing this book. So the inspiration was very sudden and very
0: intense. And it was really the case where one day I just realized, wow, this is not just a collection of frameworks I've got in my head and I sort of like maybe will publish one at a time through a blog post or this is not just, you know, a book full of case studies and how-so examples of like cool AI companies. This is actually a completely new form of competitive advantage and it's really important to understand this if you're a regulator or if you're at a big company that needs to like stay on top of things or if you're starting a company, and that is this form of competitive advantage, which I call data learning effects, is completely different to a network effect or building a brand or all these other ways in which we've thought about getting a competitive advantage in the past. And I sat down and I wrote the words competing with AI, which is sort of a, a wordplay because it's like, if you're not doing it, you're against it. And if you are doing it, it's you know an amazing tool to build a competitive advantage And I wrote 18,000 words in three days and it just came out, it just sort of all came out. And then I got to the hard bit, which was writing the other 40 something thousand words and I just forced myself to write 500 words a day for three months and sometimes that took 20 minutes and sometimes it took four hours, um, just sort of doing it on nights and weekends. And then, you know, I had a book. Um, So the answer to your question is the inspiration came very intensely and very suddenly. And it was all around just sort of coalescing all these frameworks, experiences, et cetera, on this one idea, which was this is a new form of competitive advantage.
1: You mentioned that a lot of it is focused on sort of definitions, framing frameworks to help people actually use this advice. And that's one thing, you know, I, I heard you talk about that a little bit but was really struck by like, oh, wow, this is really actionable. Someone can, can take this, come back to it and, and actually use this in helping to build these functions into their companies. How did you decide on that style of a book as opposed to something else, maybe of sort of flowery glory stories of finding investments or what, you know, you could have gone in a number of directions. How did you decide on this sort of very actionable, practical feel? Yeah, gosh, that's such a great question. And it um it says to me you know a lot more about the publishing
0: industry than you probably think you do, um, which is okay. A few things. Um, one I've just got to say upfront. You know, the publisher I worked with, Penguin Portfolio, Penguin were so amazing in this regard. They both had respect for my knowledge of this industry. You know, they're not AI people, they're not in the world all day long, I am. But were able to transfer a lot of what I wrote into more of a product with checklists and, you know, bullet point summaries and some and you know good design. And you know, I worked a lot with an illustrator separate from from Penguin um, to sort of put a lot of this stuff in visual form. But they really helped me turn it from You know, prose into product, Uh, and so I've got to say that upfront, they were great. And you know, when you think about it, working with a publisher like that that is both big, so attracts incredibly good editors, but also is uh, in the mode of portfolio in particular, which is like an imprint of of Penguin, in the mode of publishing these like very practical business books. You know, there are just really good. Um, ways like best practices for communicating uh, ideas so that they're usable for business people. Again, checklist frameworks, illustrations, how to's, that sort of thing. So, you know, that was really helpful. The second thing was a real conflict, which was how many case studies to do and how many examples to give. And, you know, on the one hand, people want to ground these concepts in reality. On the other hand, you know, I just didn't want to put all these case studies and examples in there because, one, they age or date the book. Two, anyone can cherry pick a case study that makes sense for them. And three, no one wants to read another case study of Kodak and Instagram. I think, you know, I worked with my publisher there to get a balance. The second thing was how much to focus on case studies versus concepts, and I erred on the side of concepts. Um, and I think the third thing is, you know, how much to... How much to focus on one idea as opposed to lots of different implications of the idea. And so the idea, the big idea is like this new type of competitive advantage. And I was so tempted to write about all the policy implications of this. Like if companies are changing the way they compete, should we change the way we regulate monopolies? I was so tempted to write about the philosophical implications of this. Like how does AI change what we know, what's, what's the implication on the notion of knowledge of having all these machines, discovering all these things. So, you know, there were lots of temptations there, but I think keeping it focused on one thing, you know, hopefully makes it a better, more usable product. But anyway, that's just a bit of an insight into the conflicts I had as I was
1: putting this together. Super interesting. And and I have an admission for you is that I started reading the physical form of the book mm-hmm. in the middle switched over to the audio book so that I could do it async. Mm-hmm. Right. And then realized that some of the parts I was like, this is actually, I need to have, like, I could tell the the person who's reading it is reading like a table or like mm-hmm. a framework that's clearly in visual form. And I had went back to the book and thought like, this is actually much better consumed as a book, mm-hmm. not as an audio book. Uh, and it's based on a lot of what you just described, right? A lot of it is actually meant to be, learn in that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. And
0: look, hopefully just to pick up on that, you know, one, the audio book comes with a PDF. Um, but two, <laughs> two, Amazon and all these other companies are great because you can, as you said, flick through and sync it up, but three, like it's good to maybe just get an impression over audio and then go back to the book and like, keep it handy as you're, as you go through things of work. Um, and that's certainly something you can do. So yeah, I, It's interesting to hear you say that because I think that's how the book is ultimately meant to be consumed, but um, it can be consumed sort of in dual mode fairly effectively, I hope. And the last thing I'll say is feel free to flick through it. It is designed so you can just flick through one chapter at a time, skim it, go to the bullet points at the end, go back if you want. You know, it's not a book that, you know, needs to be preciously consumed, you know, in order, in the order in which it's written, it's okay.
1: <laughs> yeah. And and while we're on the topic of the, of the audio piece, was that a person who read that or was that actually AI <laughs> reading a book about AI?
0: Everyone asked me this question and I was so tempted to get AI to do it. But at the end of the day, there are some amazing voice actors out there that just bring stuff to life. They make it so much more exciting and interesting to listen to. Um, so I was lucky enough to work with one of them, uh, Lachlan. So, uh, I was tempted to use AI, but it's just not that good yet.
1: (laughs) Fair enough. You talk a lot about a term which you sort of define and focus on, Mm -hmm. uh, daily or data learning Mm -hmm. effects, um, either for you or in general, when investors are out there trying to sort of sniff out the potential for these DLEs Um, when looking at new companies, what are some ways that you think about flushing out, hey, is there a real potential for impactful DLEs in this particular business model or company?
0: Yeah, great question. Um, Because it's hard and it takes a long time to actually uh, sort of figure it out and flesh out the notion of a dla as it applies to any particular investment. And so for those who haven't had a chance to read the book yet, uh, data learning effects are the automatic compounding of information meaning very very quickly and this you know whole first chapter really is about this. It's you got to get a lot of data, critical massive data. You've got to have the capability to turn that data into information, clean it up, process it, put it into context, make it s- structure it if you if you need to, etc. And then finally Learn over that using a machine, so it automatically learns from the information that you've um, you've got from the data that you've got. So that's what a DLE is. Um, the first part of that is data collection. The second part is data processing, and the third part is usually machine learning. And so, how do we flesh, How do we figure this out? How do we sort of flesh out the concept of a DLE when we're looking at an investment? Well, we do it in that order, which is okay. What data did you get? and is it valuable? Um, will someone else be able to get that really quickly, basically? And there are a few checklists around that uh, in a later chapter in the book, you know, how we figure out if data is valuable. The second thing is, well, how did you process it? Did it cost you a huge amount of money to clean that up? Is that a cost you're gonna have to incur on an ongoing basis, or was it a one-off cost? Is that a cost your customers will cover, or is that a cost you had to cover, for example, data labeling? Um, And that's really important because ultimately like a business has to be self-supported, has to be sustainable, and to do that has to not be spending a heap of money, more money than it's earning on an ongoing basis. And so really digging into the processing steps and how much they cost and how much time they take so that customers can get something up and running efficiently and cheaply is really important. And then finally, and perhaps the hardest bit of all of this, in terms of the amount of technical knowledge you need, Is understanding if that information that you know that is the data after it's been processed is something that a machine can learn over? Does a machine learning method apply well to that information? And the way we figure that out is by looking at experiments. And you just you've got to, in a sense, do the basic uh, thing of okay, what was your hypothesis? What was your method? And what were your results? High school science stuff, but in a sense, go into a lot of uh, technical detail there, such as, um, you know, what metrics we're using to measure it, uh, measure the accuracy, and what effect did it have as you change uh, the modeling technique you were using, or as you got more data, or as you got data that you hadn't seen before that the model didn't train on, it just saw totally new out of the blue data. So there's a lot to figure out there as well. That's um, that's pretty difficult, but I cover in the latter
1: parts of the book in terms of what metrics to look at when you're assessing this stuff. And in in the latter part of the book, you you do talk a lot about data labeling options that companies have for either you know in-sourced, outsourced, automated data labeling. It seems to be a huge part of training these models. For a lot of our listeners who may be in the sort of ops or sales or go-to-market functions, how would you recommend that? Non-engineering folks can start to expose themselves to to this type of work, or potentially be involved in the process of data labeling, or you know, sort of other non-engineering work streams. That's a good question, um, because those sorts of people are incredibly important.
0: When you think about what data labeling is, like, how do you just transform raw data into information from which you can learn? In a sense. Everyone with domain expertise is doing that every day. And that is they're seeing what happens. We're all doing it every day in a real human sense where we've got input, you know, we're perceiving things, looking at things, hearing things and whatnot. We're figuring out their relevance in the context of other things and we're trying to learn. And that's what intelligence is, I contend, the rate at which you learn. And so, you know, in a business context and thinking about an AI first company in particular, You know, you really are incredibly important no matter what you're doing at a company in terms of seeing things on the front lines. What are customers trying to get out of your product? What are they ultimately trying to do? Are they trying to recognize how much stuff is on their shelves? Are they trying to sell more t-shirts? Are they trying to predict what's going to be popular next year? Are they, um, you know, trying to, Extract more juice from fruit. Are they, what are they trying to do? And how are they trying to do it? And what are they missing in that? So, you know, what are they not noticing? And how can you notice that as, uh, in a scalable way? Could Should you put a camera there? Should you go out to their site and take a survey? Should you... Um, Send them a request for a piece of information every month or so saying, you know, what happened this month? What happened this month? And then collect that over time and then see with your own eyes, all right, what am I noticing here that they're not? And then go and talk to someone on your team um, with expertise in sort of self learning systems and say, you know, here's what I've collected. Here's what I've noticed. And Here's how I think it could be automated. What do you think? Or here's how I think this prediction could be better. What do you think? So, um, in a general sense, like we're all perceiving things out in the field every day, and those that are making the models, you know, generally aren't perceiving all that much because they're not out in the field. So, any observation you're making about your customer's business is probably you know, somewhat valuable, and thinking about how you can observe things at scale. Uh, notice things that customers or get information that customers don't have, notice things that customers can't notice, and then figure out how to learn over that, figure out patterns
1: there uh, is really valuable. I love that. And, you know, it struck me as I was going through this that there are you a know, huge example, a huge number of examples of companies who sort of treat a lot of this work in an engineering silo when the experts or often who will give them the most contextual information around their company are sitting right there talking with customers every day. So it struck me that there's both the, you know, it's important to involve those experts, but also have them buy into the process of this is, why this is valuable work stream for you to go and help us sort out what does this data mean, whether it's sentiment from a particular reply of an outbound email or a particular look and feel of a customer from, from unstructured data. Um, having sort of a cross-functional support is not just good for the company, but good for those employees to, to better understand what they're getting back from these models. Absolutely. Yeah. And you talk a little bit about Ultimately, a lot of these data learning effects and and a lot of what goes into AI is around making predictions, right? Whether it's, um, you know, sort of taking that next step in a workflow or making a prediction about what what will happen next. Um, And you, you talked about how customers should help drive, you know, the company's customers should help drive a lot of what those predictions should be. What are some ways that companies can think about building a culture around that, that feedback loop between You know, what are the customers looking for and how do we build that into different models? This is something that, in a sense,
0: I try to get at in the title, Um, but in a sense, it's sort of so hard to get at because all these cultural questions are really hard to figure out and they're so different in every company. But, you know, to answer the question, I try to get at it by just saying you've got to be AI first and I just keep reiterating that. So every conversation, whether it's about people, policy, what product you're going to build next, how you price your product, every conversation needs to have a voice in the room that's like, all right, but how does this make our AI better? How does this reinforce, more specifically, our data learning effect? And that's the mindset that I I think is really necessary in this moment in time, uh, in this age, which is, putting AI first in in every conversation. And it just has to be one question every conversation. It's like, well, we're going to add this feature to our product, but, you know, does that let us collect more data about what our customers are experiencing and seeing, or is it just, you know, a button that makes the calculation faster? Um, And, you know, we're going to price it this way, but does that actually discourage usage and therefore reduce the amount of data we're collecting, or does it... Encourage usage and increase the data we're collecting. So that's the mindset that, that I think would be great um, for many cultures, for many businesses um, to have every day in their culture. Um, and that's what I'm trying to get
1: across. You also talk a lot about how you know, building it into the plan, building it into the budget from the very beginning is is critical, which makes a lot of sense. Have you seen uh, examples of sort of new roles or new people that are carving out parts of their whole world and their whole day to just focus on this and especially on the go to market side, like should there be a single person on a go to market team who helps to drive that feedback loop with product and engineering, how have you seen the sort of roles or the functions change to support this type of thinking yeah, good question
0: um. I think on the sales and go-to-market team, so we'll start with marketing first, actually. I mean, so much. Um, The idea that, you know, you are able to do product-led growth, so to speak, uh, or, you know, you're able to do, like, hyper-segmentation, all this stuff, really all starts with the data, and that is how are people using our product? How could they use the product more? requires a huge amount of data collection and analytics. The idea that you know, there are lots of other customers out there that look like this, and we're gonna target them automatically in this way, requires a huge amount of data collection. So there are so many new roles there um, around collecting data, buying data, managing data, putting data all in the one place on the marketing side. And, you know, I think this audience knows a lot of those roles really well, but I guess thinking about them in terms of an AI-first company might be a slightly different way to think about them. The other thing um, that I think is happening is on the sales side, and that is, it's sort of similar in a way but also completely different in reality. Um, it's similar in that, you know, sales is getting, as you know, you know having pioneered a lot of this stuff at Dogpatch, um, sales is getting, you know, much more outbound-driven and much more, um, you know, uh, what you would used to call SDR-driven but is now, you know, just just far more intelligent. And, you know, there's just so much leverage available to salespeople who use data well, who use de- data like, you know, how are people actually communicating to me? How do they want to communicate with me and how do I meet them where they are more often? And how do I remind them about what this product can do for them more often? How do I reach out to them at the right time, et cetera, et cetera? And, like, figuring that out, in a sense, is sort of easy. Like, everyone has a feel for when their customers do and don't want to hear from them. But, you know, your feeling is often wrong. And to get it right more, you have to collect more data. And so, again, data collection around communications channels, around, you know, um, role-based marketing, account-based marketing, all the data collection that's required there, all the um, consolidation and cleaning you know do we have everyone's phone numbers and emails? do we have you know all their communication preferences? do we have their latest titles like all that stuff is a lot of work you know across a big sales database, and then the automation part of it you know how often should we be contacting them? You know, how automated should it be? Should the the content be automated or just the timing be automated? You know, there are a lot of questions there. So the point is, you know, I have certainly seen with the companies I work for, so many roles being created across the go-to-market function um, in the organization over the last couple of years that just didn't exist before. And in fact, I would say most of these companies that are doing a really good job, the majority of the management roles at these companies did not exist five years ago. And they are all around something related to data, product-led growth, account-based marketing, or otherwise.
1: I love the way that you laid that out. It feels like often there's sort of two separate conversations around how many people are we gonna hire and what are they gonna do? And then sort of what does our data pipeline look like and how do we think about structuring that? And I think it's often important to remind companies that. That actually is one conversation because often what all of those people that you have planned to hire are doing is going and looking for that data, organizing that data, labeling that data, cleaning that data, right? So having those two things meet, right, around hiring plans and the sort of day-to-day work with building a data pipeline, often you can take two steps back, think about sourcing a lot of that data at scale and having the people stand on the shoulders of that data and be plugged into it in the right way as opposed to actually sourcing it themselves, right, as you, as you alluded to. So I love that. Um, what are some ways that you're hoping that this book is used, um, whether it's in academia or other places that might surprise listeners? Clearly, there's a lot of folks in Silicon Valley and beyond who who could pick this up off the shelf and use it today. But maybe, you know, in your... When you think about, like, uh, maybe some of the uh, the less predictable use cases for the book, what do you hope th- this book helps people to do? Yeah, I mean, I really hope that all sorts of people
0: running all sorts of businesses can use it, you know, from running a sandwich shop and figuring out what sells at what time and what's moving on and off our shelves to really big businesses like, you know, an old-school printing business. How can we get efficiencies in how much ink we're using every day? I really hope that lots of businesses get some value from it. And there's just a lot of businesses, you know, particularly over in Europe, where I spend most of my time, that are in manufacturing or in something, and they're really good at doing one really specific thing, like making a certain type of buckle or electrical outlet or something like that. And they've been doing things really well, but mostly by design. They're mostly just designed a good product. But there's so much they can learn from what happens as, as they try to distribute it to lots of different parts of the world, as they try to manufacture it with newer materials and whatnot. They're, they're sort of not even realizing because they don't have enough sensors around the place, or they're not sort of getting the data back from what's selling and where and how um, so i really hope that a lot of those sorts of mainline companies find it really useful um, i also hope but i probably have to write another book that's more directly focused on this i also hope that policymakers sort of realize the power of this competitive advantage and start thinking about you know how might we be able to make sure that you know we have an economy where everyone has a fair chance and there are just a couple of runaway companies that control the, the economy and, and eventually society. So I hope some policy makers learn something from it too.
1: And you, you sort of stole one of my last questions. Is that actually on the horizon? A, a follow-on book, yeah. have you already started thinking about that? I know you're, you're oh mid, you just put this out, so no pressure, right? You have probably like a huge amount of work behind you. Yeah, no, I've got okay. three or four. So um, yeah, one about policy,
0: one about examples. And then one about um, sort of more philosophy, like the epistemological point I was making before. Does this add to our knowledge? So yeah,
1: we'll see. We'll look forward to those. And Ash, as we as we wrap up, um, maybe tell people where they can find you, um, where they can, I'm assuming, you know, wherever books are sold, clearly on Amazon and beyond, but where can they learn more about you and Hmm. and stay up to date on a lot of the things that that you're sharing with the community?
0: Yeah, sure. I'm just Ash Fontana, A-S-H-F-O-N-T-A-N-A on Twitter and LinkedIn. And the book's website is theaifirstcompany.com. And I post various things there. Um, But that's where people can stay up to date. You'll see a lot of different perspectives on what's happening in the world of AI and how it applies to real problems uh, in those places. Ash Fontana on Twitter and LinkedIn.
1: Awesome. And I just want to say, congrats on the book. Again, it is awesome. And congrats on everything you've built and all your success. It was funny. I've known you for long enough where, like, yeah, I'm like, yeah, yeah, Ash is a successful investor. But, like, when Sometimes my friends come across your work, you're like, you know, Ash? You realize he's one of the best up and coming (laughs) investors in this space, right? I have to be like, yeah, but I've known that for like 10 years, right? So um, I'm just glad that more people are able to get access to your thoughts and, uh, and, and for doing this book.
0: Well, I've been lucky enough to learn a lot from you about sales and much, much more. So, you know, please know you had a big influence on a lot of the knowledge in this book as well. And uh, it's really fun to talk to you about it and know that you've got to see it.
1: You're too kind, Ash. I appreciate (laughs) that, but we'll we'll probably keep that in.
0: Thanks for joining us. To learn more, check out groundtruthpod.com for other Ground Truth episodes and a deeper dive into each story. Ground Truth is a production of Dogpatch Patch Advisors, written by Jack Buhrer from Campfire Labs, sound engineering and studio space provided by TJ Bonaventura and Julian Lewis from StudioPod,
1: editing and mixing by Nota Lab, and video production by Nick Shaheen from Above Treeline Studios.